Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast with me, Conor Whiteley. Psychology student and international best-selling psychology author of over 30 psychology books, bringing you the latest psychology news, fascinating psychology topics and more each week. If you want to learn more, then please check out connorwhiteley.net forward slash books. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the YouTube video or follow on your favourite podcast app. And here's the show. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 224 of the Psychology World Podcast with me, Connor Whiteley. And today's episode is on how does attachment styles impact eating disorders? And it's... uh, Friday the 11th of August 2023 as I record this so I'm recording this a little bit early because I'm out tomorrow and this is a really fun podcast episode that I found immensely useful. To be honest this is probably the most helpful episode to me personally that I've ever done. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the personal update but this is a great episode really interesting to actually take something from the developmental psychology, which is attachment styles, and how we learn them in, in early childhood, and actually apply them to eating disorders. And it's just another interesting take on the a question about, about how does our childhood impact our chances of developing and maintaining an eating disorder, and our larger mental health. So really interesting, really great. I loved this. This is really, really useful. Not only if you're a um, psychologist or a professional, but if you're just interested in eating disorders. But also this does have some more takeaway point of those which anyone can use, even if you don't have an eating disorder. Nothing official, of course, but this is a great one. That I loved it. So we're moving on to the psychology news section. We're reading from the British Psychological Society Research Digest, and the first one is a particularly fun. Autistic doctors face significant obstacles. Increasing understanding of neurodiversity has brought light to complex ways in which everyday life can be affected by autism. Everything from clothing choices to career paths may be influenced by autistic traits and preferences they prefer. One field that those with autism may be drawn to is medicine. Common autistic characteristics such as attention to detail, pattern recognition, conscientiousness are traits neurotypical medics seem to nurture after all. However, that does mean the medical field is a walk in the park for autistic doctors. A new study finds that they that many struggle with the demanding nature of current systems and may have even considered suicide. The authors call for a more neurodiversity affirmative approach to autism within medicine, promoting inclusion and adaptation to improve the current situation for autistic doctors. This is a really interesting one though because this is something that me and my friend actually talk about quite a lot about um, different neurodiversity traits. Really interesting conversations and I absolutely love them. 
love them though. And I completely agree though, like when it comes to medicine, this is a very natural field, it's something that's interesting, excited, and you would have thought that autistic traits traits would be perfect. But of course, as we've spoken about before on the podcast, when it comes to autism, there are there are challenges and things do need to be adapted. Well, and I know in like the UK as I mentioned before on the podcast, we are in an NHS crisis. We do not have the workforce. <laughs> we seriously don't. Waiting lists are basically stupid uh, at, like, at this point. And, and if we want to actually solve these problems, then we need to try and increase the number of people people actually coming into medicine. Or like medicine though so it's absolutely critical whether we do start thinking about ways to adapt just so any workplace that can be become more neurodivergent friendly just we can maintain the workforce as you get people in keep them and just so they can then go on that like save lives do good and have a real positive impact in their community and i know this is sort of what we're starting to recognize in psychology more but again, though, medicine. Medicine is ruled by the biomedical model. And from everything that I've seen, the doctors that I've spoken to, they really don't care about psychological factors. And I have someone that might struggle. And as it has a biological cause, <laughs> they aren't that interested. So interesting. And I really hope that there is change. So the second one I think is particularly fun because it's something that I'm actually doing like tomorrow. So, a decades-long study um, illustrates bisexuality boom. And also, I do just want to say this because I do not know if um, the article's actually going to cover it. Because I always see, yeah, because I always see the homophobes and everything, like, banging on about, like, this point. Yes, there are these headlines that say that everything's in, like, increasing. But you've got to remember... This is coming from such a small, small, tiny minority of the general population anyway. So, like, so if you've got one person out of like 100 and there's a 200% increase, that still only leaves you with three people out of 100. So again, it's absolutely tiny. So yeah, so like, oh, yeah, just hold, so I just want to make like, that clear though. A number of public opinion surveys over the last few years have suggested that more and more people are reported being lesbian, gay or bisexual than ever before. Even though research on bisexuality is lacking, leaving us with less knowledge about the full egg ascent of our society's sexual egg experiences and identities, leaving bisexuality frequently misunderstood, even within LGBT plus circles. In a new piece published in the Journal of Sex Research, a University of Portland team explores the rise in bisexuality in recent years, as well as sexual behaviours amongst people with different orientations. They find an increase in people reporting both male and female partners over time, as well as increasing identification with the bisexual label. The rate of bisexual identification ranges significantly across age group, potentially suggesting the more accepting attitudes and legal protections are allowing them for freer egg expression of a fast sexual identity. So there's actually not a lot I can actually say here except like this is good. Yes, yeah, so like this is like 
Could the land is a good land to more accepting attitudes, at least in certain parts of like the world. <laughs> yeah, but like the world and the legal protections, even though they're increasing in some countries, uh, crumbling in like other countries. Uh, countries though, like it does lead to a freer uh, a freer uh, expression of like sexual desire. So it's interesting, and it's, it's like good that this is happening. There's just not a lot for me to actually say about this. So, we're moving on to the last one. Effective working at memory helps us predict future feelings. We use working memory every day, whether it be during a conversation with a friend or working through our shopping list. This is a form of short-term memory that allows you to actively hold and manipulate pieces of information in your mind for brief periods. If you've studied psychology, it's likely that you're, all, that you're already familiar with the idea, but you might be less familiar with another form of working memory uncovered by recent research, one that works not with information, but with emotion or feeling states. This is called effective working memory, and our new paper in Emotion reports that a group of American participants who had a better effective working memory also better at predicting how they would feel about the results of the 2020 US presidential election. These new findings, open quote, underscore the potential in opponents of effective working memory in that some forms of higher order emotional fault. Close quote. Right lead author Colin Frank and colleagues at the University of Michigan. So what was a cognitive psychology might not be one of my most favourite areas of vast ecology. It's, def it's definitely important to that we keep uh, looking at it. And effective working memory, well, it's always good that we've actually found something like brand new. And then it'd be interesting to see what uh, can actually come of this uh, researcher. Because now that we've found this, we already know quite a lot about basic, I say in air quotes, working memory this allows us to manipulate in information and if you look at uh, tons of uh, tons of uh, different studies that have been done over the um, decades uh, about working memory we have a good understanding we know how, how to increase it and we know the negative impacts it can have if we decrease it so now with the future research questions are on how could effective memory working memory work or help us because I'm not sure because if you think about emotions I'm not sure how we would want to emulate and actually work with our emotional states even that right because even that well we probably do it all the time so it'd be interesting to see where this theory goes and it's definitely food for thought. So, I hope you enjoyed the psychology news section. So, let's move on to the personal update. So, we're uh, moving on to the personal update. So, I am going to keep this very, very short because um, I just want to, to be honest, but there is a subtle point that I do want to make about this. So, I won't lie and I want to be honest with you guys because I want you guys to know that I am a human, I do have my own struggles. So yes, my mental health has been horrific this week, I will never lie about that, it's been really really bad. However, 
However, the reason why I'm actually telling you about this was originally I was not going to tell you guys whatsoever. However, when I was writing out this blog post, originally I wanted to do a really light-hearted um, topic, but I couldn't find anything that actually interests me. So I thought eating disorders, the really deadly mental health condition, because that will make you feel great when it comes <laughs> when it comes to your like, mental health. So I did it. And I was writing this blog post and I just, something just clicked inside and it basically served all my mental health difficulties of the week. So, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because I never ever want us to forget the goodness and the power of psychology. I know this has been my little soapbox lately, but I really do want to show you a good example because yes, we all have mental health difficulties at times like believe me i seriously do but if we remember and if we try and focus on what we've learned in psychology like on this podcast or in a clinical psychology then that can definitely help us if we let it and if we're open to realizing that life is really good and just that sort of like uh, um like suffer i'm i might sort of elaborate as we go through the blog post but it's really fun and that's what i found today's podcast episode really really useful and as always i always love to your thoughts and feelings on today's episode so you can always email me conorwhitely.net you can always leave comments on the show notes at conorwhitely.net forward slash podcast and you can always tweet me on twitter or x me or whatever that's a platform that's like devolved into at sci-fi widely i always love to hear from all of you because it really helps me the podcast for my a, a conversation and today's episode has been sponsored by developmental psychology a guide to developmental and child psychology so this is an absolute brilliant book that i really love because developmental psychology i used to say i would never be interested in it and i hated it but ever since writing that book, ever since doing podcast episodes, I realised I would never research it, believe me. But it is such a fun area because, because if you have nieces and nephews, um, so their mental psychology can get really interesting because you can sort of see what you've learnt in developmental psychology and apply it to everyday life. But also it's just interesting to see how do children develop. Like how do their cognitive processes develop? How does their brain develop? How do their social processes? And my absolute favourite topic is cross-cultural development. I love anything to do with like cross-cultural development. So how do babies develop differently, but also the same depending on the culture that they're raised in. Raised in though, and this great, really easy to understand book in my normal fun conversational tone actually helps you understand it and you actually want to read it because it is a lot of fun so really good really in like enjoyable and there's so many different topics that are actually explored in the book that i can't name like them all but mainly because there's just so many yeah so i really do recommend it so that is developmental psychology a guide to developmental and child psychology Available from all major ebook retailers, and you can get the paperback and the hardback version from Amazon, your local bookstore, or local library if you request it. 
and you can buy the ebook directly from me at payhip.com forward slash con wiley so what boss buying book helps to support the creation and the editing of the podcast my time is a sponsor by my wonderful patrons and as always a massive thank you to my patrons because your support shows that shows that you like the show and that you want it to continue so if you wanted to become a patron and support the show and get a ton of other great rewards including early access to the blog post then you can now become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the psychology world podcast so that's enough for the personality let's move on to the content part of today's episode so we're moving on to the content part of the today's episode so we're going to be looking at how this attachment style impact eating disorders this is a great episode i really enjoyed it and this is really really useful so let's dive into it if you've ever done developmental psychology before then you might be aware that our relationships are largely determined by the type of attachment style we have then this impact on our relationships can impact our mental health happiness and the state of our protective factors when it comes to mental health difficulties. As a result, there are four attachment styles, and these describe how we maintain and establish our relationships. Firstly, you have a secure attachment, and this is all about positive perception of the self and others, so that we can have the capacity to form and maintain closer connections with other people, and tolerate differences and being separated from them, as well as we can maintain effective emotional coping. Secondly, you have anxious attachment. This is an insecure attachment style, whether a person has a high need of reassurance, has trouble trusting others, and a fear of abandonment. Thirdly, you have avoidant attachment. This is another type of insecure attachment style. This is where a person avoids closer connections and has a tendency to dismiss feelings and push away from intimacy. Finally, you have a disorganised attachment, and personally, I have to admit, I do give this one a hard time. This is basically just a massive miscellaneous category, but also I do understand it, because, yeah, I think that if out of all of them, I might have tendencies towards this one, because it's basically a mixture of the anxious and the avoidant attachment styles, when someone doesn't really have a set style where that they prefer to use in everyday situations thankfully there's a lot of good high quality research that links attachment styles and eating disorders for example a 2019 meta review on the topic showed us that people with anxious or avoidant attachment styles are actually more vulnerable to, to, to developing eating disorders this is because these people unfortunately have difficulties in establishing relationships and maintaining these closer relationships as well as intimacy, trust in others and exerting self-control over their emotional responses. All of these are traits that, that might very well help but to cause and maintain an eating disorder. For instance, if we look at binge eating disorder or even a bulimia, if someone uses their poor relationship with food to cope with the emotional responses, 
Then they eat a lot, and then if they have a bulimia, they take a gas gym and measures that to get rid of the food, and this helps them to believe or feel like they have a, they have control over their life again. As a result, the authors of the 2019 meta-analysis argued that when it comes to treating eating disorders, we need to focus on addressing the client's attachment style, since this might be critical in the recovery process. Personally, I'm really hopeful of any researcher that actually helps us to develop eating disorder treatments because we so badly need them. Due to even cognitive behavioural therapy, which is our best and most effective treatment for eating disorders at the moment, still isn't that grand though, so compared to CBT for other mental health clinicians, and over a third of our clients will never enter recovery from an eating disorder. Another study from 2021 looked at the relationship between a person's attachment style and their friends and parents and the rate of body dissatisfaction in teenagers. As you can imagine, when there were high levels of alienation, trust and communication issues, there was also a high level of body dissatisfaction. Therefore, the researchers argued that we need to maintain our social relationships positively and help a client work out towards a secure attachment style with their friends and parents as this might cause a protective effect against body dissatisfaction. Finally, when it comes to very recent research, another study from 2022 looked at attachment style and how it impacted treatment outcomes from a client undergoing enhanced cognitive behavioural therapy. The results showed a significant link between treatment outcomes as well as insecure attachment styles because the negative attachment styles caused a lower rate of remission and high rates of eating disorders. Meaning, whenever a client comes out to us as future or current clinical psychologists, we need to explain to them the role of relationships in their condition and why it is important to create and maintain closeness with others. How developing a secure attachment style can help with eating disorder recovery. I mentioned earlier how in a psychotherapy we can help people to adopt and develop a secure attachment style to help them establish and maintain their close relationships. Now well, we need to look at how this actually helps in a little more detail. This all comes down to resilience because interdependence is a very useful way to build someone's resilience and help them recover from an eating disorder. Since having a network of dependable connections provides a client with a sense of belonging, acceptance and security. Something I know that is flat out critical for mental health. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a reminder of this week. This helps the client to increase their self-acceptance and self-worth. And I did sort of elaborate this on the blog post because it does connect to other stuff. And I do want to be honest here that this is something that I've been struggling with at the moment. And I know this is harder for anyone, but accepting yourself for who you are and what's happened to you in the past, but also what needs to happen in the future, is flat out critical to move on. And 
you can actually have a great life. This is why it's a critical and the fact that we do have a way to do this in a therapeutic setting is brilliant. Anyway, by helping a, a client to develop trustworthy relationships that give emotional support so that they are able to get through the tough times in addition to the practical support when it comes to them planning in enjoyable activities, helping to distract them during the hard times and helping them to prepare their meals. This all helps the person to stay motivated for the long term so they can recover. Therapy isn't easy, but with the right support, it is possible. And the critical aspect of all of this is that the simple fact that in, uh, that in psychology, we understand that supportive relationships are key to start building a life that is worth living. Therefore, supportive relationships are, are critical in the recovery aspect of an eating disorder. This is why helping our clients to develop secure and healthy connections by asking for support from reliable family members, friends and specialists that can be immensely powerful on their own healing journey. How can someone practice secure attachment as an adult? Of course, nothing on the podcast is ever any sort of official advice, but this is something I am extremely interested in, and I know this is going to be useful by a lot of psychology students, professionals and people impacted by eating disorders too. As a result, when it comes to eating disorder treatment, we know that clients need to create secure attachment patterns centered around their body image, food, thoughts, or even exercise. A given therapist might want their client to choose their relationships over their eating disorder, or for when they're emotionally de-stressed, they want them to reach for people, not food. This might include helping a client to be there for their friends more, more by turning up to a work party or something else, instead of letting their anxious thoughts about the social situation or food possibly harm the relationship. There are a lot of other examples, but in a therapy, a therapist might encourage the client to do lots of these sort of things, where they can focus on their personal relationships instead of their fears. Furthermore, there are some skills and techniques that people can use to improve their secure attachments. These include establishing clear and helpful boundaries with their friends, developing effective communication skills, showing understanding and a kindness towards others and themselves, as well as relying on their own internal validation instead of seeking out reassurance from others. Nonetheless, these are sort of personal favourites of mine, but yeah. And I and I still wanted to include these. So that these include um, tolerating and being physically apart and spending time away from each other without feeling abandoned. Asking and offering other people see a port, and that is a massive one. And trusting the full goodness of yourself and the important people you you have around you. And finally, I really like the idea of having the confidence that we know what we stand for and we know ourselves. Conclusion 
So I flat out loved how useful this podcast episode was to me personally because I've taken quite a lot of stuff from this podcast episode and I actually felt amazing after this um, episode and I didn't know that this was going to be helpful to me. Really didn't. I just wanted to write this because it would be useful for all of you and it's a podcast episode that people might find useful. That is always my main motivation for these episodes. But relationships are critical for our mental health and we need to have close relationships and I'm glad that that now while we not only understand their importance of eating disorders but we understand how we can change our attachment styles for the future so we can better ourselves in the long run. Of course talking to a therapist or any other mental health professional will always be critical and it could help a lot. This is beyond a critical and outside of therapy, it's important to focus on our close relationships and maintaining them. Not only because this helps us to feel great about ourselves and our lives, but also because these can be very important protective factors against body dissatisfaction in teenagers and helping people with eating disorders. Since even if you have an insecure attachment style as a young person, it doesn't mean that you cannot have a secure attachment as an adult. So I really hope that you liked this episode and you got something out of it. I know that I did and I know that and I know that I definitely need to start focusing on developing a more secure attachment style or yeah, but like a style though and and right and basically letting myself and allowing myself to form more close relationships because I realised forming close relationships would not kill me. But again, because of my past, I know that that's really hard. So really interesting. I love episodes like this. So I, so I really hope that you found it useful as well. And if you know anyone who would find today's episode useful, then please share it with them. I'm always really grateful when you wonderful people help spread the words about the podcast. And if you want to learn more, then definitely check out developmental psychology a guide to developmental and child psychology available in all the usual places and you can buy the ebook directly from me at payhip.com forward slash con wiley and if you want to become a patron of the show then definitely check out patreon.com forward slash the psychology world podcast so have a great day everyone and i'll see you next time Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. Please remember to like the video and subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And if you wanted to learn more, then please check out the backlist of the podcast episodes or my books at conwhitely.net. So have a great day and I'll see you next time.